You're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.2, In Over Their Heads, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and come back to me. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and I have some very important news, and it's that I love Judah's little face. (laughs) We were looking at screenshots to pick a cover, and he just makes so many good faces. (laughs) It's so good. You know, Camille made some good faces, too. Judo makes better faces. Mobile Suit Breakdown Civil War. (laughs) Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 364 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, John S., Brian H., Roberto, Aaron W., Brandon S., Dan F., Cody L., Sebastian D, Brayden H, Alex, John W, Lee J, Gary L, Genesis M, Travis S, Pyre, Jace, Jonathan P, Grady B, Evan P, Maximilian H, Dawson F, and Nick N. This podcast would not be possible without your support. We are ever closer to Mobile Suit Breakdown's second birthday, and longtime listeners know that that means our second annual Podversary promo is coming. Our new limited edition pin commemorating the second year and third season of the podcast arrived this week. They look amazing, and we will be sending one out to every eligible patron, which is to say patrons who are pledging $5 or more on September 1st, 2020. Go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon or check out our social media for pictures of the pins and more details. This week we are covering episode 2 of Gundam Double Zeta, The Boy from Shangri-La or Shangri-La no Shonen. After the recap and our talkback, Nina has some research about developments in Japan's economy that we see reflected in the lives of the boys from Shangri-La. But first, last season, every episode started with a brief segment from the Titans News Network. What started out as a way to help recap the events of the prior week's episode turned into a whole little microfiction radio drama about the staff at TNN and its arch rivals over at the AUK Broadcasting Channel. Tragically, Tom Thompson, Nina Nina's daughter, and the whole TNN broadcasting team perished during the events of Zeta Gundam's finale. The only survivors were a handful of rebellious interns down at TNN Tower on Earth. So this season, let's take things in a little bit of a different direction, and we'll start by checking what's playing on the radio. You're listening to As the Colony Spins on Radio Free Shangri-La. Previously... On As the Colony Spins. Bethany! Hector! 
Bethany! Hector! Darn it all, Guildenstern. Why won't Bethany speak to me? I'm sorry, Master Hector, but Mistress Bethany is meeting with Madame H at the moment. Don't think you can get rid of me that easily, old man. This is the fourth time I've called upon her this week. First, she was washing her hair, then she was waxing her chibi mobile suit, then she was touring the uptown school for overprivileged girls. Level with me, butler. Why am I, the dashing and magnificent Hector Pariah, being iced out? Dashing and magnificent you may be, sir, but Mistress Bethany refuses to see you now that you've joined the Titans. Can't she understand that the Xeon-loving Spacenoid rabble would rise up and kill us all in our beds if it weren't for our noble Titans protectors? Ever since she was a little girl, Mistress Bethany has always had a soft spot for the unwashed masses. The soft-hearted fool. But she'll come around. Once I rise through the ranks and become the leader of the Titans, she'll have no choice but to marry me. And then her mysterious uncle's fortune will be mine at last. <laughs> oh, Bat. Oh, Bethany. Oh, Bat. I've been thinking about this a lot, Bethany. Someone's got to do something about the Titans. But, Batch, why does that someone have to be you? I've come to rely on you so much, ever since Hector left the colony to join those awful Titans. I even think I've... What is it, Bethany? Oh, Batch, I don't think I can say it. I just don't want you to leave me. I've got to join Ayug, Bethany. It's the right thing to do. But when I get back, I promise I won't ever leave you again. Y you mean? That's right. If you'll have me. Oh, but I will. And now, as the colony spins. No. No. Oh my god, no! And he was going to leave his wife and child for you. Margarita! You are so bad! Oh, I'd better go. Guildenstern is here and he looks white as a sheet. Uh, okay, uh, okay. Uh, talk to you again soon. Make better choices. I love you. Bye! What's wrong, Guildenstern? You look worse than that time you discovered a tarnished spoon in the silver cabinet. Oh, Mistress Bethany, the most dreadful news has just arrived from the front. Lieutenant Batch was killed when his mobile suit exploded. <gasps> and Lieutenant Hector. Oh, not Hector too. Please tell me he is alive. I might hate what he's done, but I could never hate him. He was my first love. He is alive, Mistress Bethany, but... But what? Guildenstern, out with it. His escape pod malfunctioned. No one knows how long he was deprived of oxygen before they found him, but he's fallen into a coma. He's to be rushed to the hospital here on Shangri-La as quickly as possible, but they say he may never wake up. 
No! I'm going to be alone forever! Will Bethany be alone forever? Will the nefarious Hector ever wake up? What secret plots will the mysterious Madame each unfurl next? And will we ever learn the dark secret behind Bethany's family fortune? All will be revealed on As the Colony Spins. But first, a message from our sponsors. The Lil Rascal Troublemaker. The only fully automatic rifle designed for children 10 and under. And tender love oranges. Big brother, oranges what are you doing with daddy's clothes? Who cares? We don't know when he's coming back, anyway. If I make big money, I'll be able to send you to a nice uptown school, like the one in that soap opera you're always listening to. <laughs> Who asked you to? Anaheim Fruit Solutions. You'll go bananas for our full line of authentic fruits and vegetables. Note, we do not have bananas. And now the recap for The Boy from Shangri-La. Badly damaged from its recent battle, the Argama and its crew limp into port at the colony of Shangri-La. Fa continues to tend a now unresponsive Camille as the ship pushes its way through the remains of the fight. Fragments of ship hulls, shattered mobile suits, and less identifiable space debris. Watching from a distance is Judo Ashta. But the boy's excitement at getting to see THE Argama is checked by a need to return to the task at hand. Judo is a salvager. He and his three friends venture out into space near the colony, looking for valuable parts and materials to sell. And today is a good day. Judo has managed to find and retrieve an almost undamaged escape pod. But almost undamaged turns out to be still functioning. And on opening the pod, they find an unconscious Titan's pilot inside. While they bicker over what to do about the pilot and how to divvy up the money, the Titan wakes up and removes his helmet. It's Yazan Gable, one of the pilots who frequently fought Camille and the Argama. He grabs hold of the nearest boy, Bicha, by his collar, demanding to know where he is and who they are. They tell him, and Judo, almost scolding, points out that if they hadn't retrieved the pod, the pilot would have died. Yazan's demeanor shifts, and he begins to laugh, louder and louder and on and on, and the boys seem even more worried than they did before. Down a dingy street, Judo ducks back into his home, an apartment in a dirty gray building. Grabbing up food and some of his father's clothes, he dashes off again in his motorcycle. His sister Lena complains about him taking their father's clothes and cutting class, but Judo points out they have no idea when their father will be home again. Besides, maybe on this job he can make enough money to send Lena to a better school uptown. On the tree-lined boulevards of Shangri-La, Judo catches up to his friend's truck, tossing food and clothes to Yazan, who is riding in the flatbed. Their goal is the spaceport, but with the Argama's recent arrival, they may not be able to get in. After changing clothes, Yazan tosses his normal suit onto the windshield of a large neighboring truck, blinding the driver. He then takes the mobile worker from the back of Judo and friend's truck, jumps to the larger truck, and drags the driver from the cab, tossing him onto the pavement. Judo's worries for the driver's safety are soon overcome by excitement, 
A new truck! Larger and more official looking, it will be useful to them, making it easier for them to enter the spaceport. They arrive to see the wounded being loaded into ambulances. Yazan targets an ambulance being driven by a young woman, Fa Yuri, and pulls a gun on her. They take her hostage, marching her into their truck. The only person in the back of the ambulance is Camille, but the boys lie to Yazan and tell him there's no one. Camille seems to be staring straight ahead, just as before, but when Judo adjusts his blankets, Camille's eyes turn to look at him. Camille reaches out his hand, and when Judo takes it in one of his own, he sees outer space swirling around them. The boys from Shangri-La, led by Yazan, plan to steal a mobile suit. Judo is in the back of the truck with Fa, and she scolds him for taking a woman hostage, for not being in school, and for, she imagines, giving nothing but grief to his parents. Calmly munching on a carrot from one of the crates, he tells her that his parents live in other colonies. The war has made it impossible for them to find work in Shangri-La. And even though they send money home, he has to work in order to pay the bills for himself and his little sister. In the spaceport, Bright and Torres argue with the local crew about repairs. Their limited funds won't cover the work needed on the mobile suits. They are interrupted by the arrival of the truck. An uncertain and clumsy Bicha very politely informs the Argama that Fa has been taken hostage and that they demand a mobile suit. Yazan uses a mobile worker to fight the Argama crew and the boys, leery of using guns, throw fruit into the fray, adding to the chaos and confusion of the low-gravity fight. Judo looks around the hangar and spots the Zeta, and an image of Camille appears, superimposed over the mobile suit. Seeing an opportunity, he apologetically kicks Bright off the top of the Zeta and hops into the cockpit, poking experimentally at the controls, only to see another vision of Camille. Saigusa, of the bridge crew of the Argama, rescues Fa from the truck. The boys don't really want to fight, but Yazan doesn't want to lose his leverage. He attacks and kills Saigusa. Judo and his friends are stunned, horrified, angry. They never wanted to hurt anyone. The Zeta shudders into motion. First, Yazan tries to get the Zeta for himself, but Judo can move it just enough to fend off Yazan in the mobile worker. Then Yazan makes a run for it, flying off into the colony itself. Fully awake to the danger, Judo takes after him, with his friends and the Argama crew far behind. They land in a junkyard, and Yazan swaps the little red mobile worker for a larger, industrial one. Judo continues to struggle with the Zeta's controls and fumbles the mobile suit's beam saber. Barely managing to hold Yazan off and defend himself, Judo finally manages to shoot a rocket, knocking Yazan clear and destroying the mobile worker. The Argamas crew arrive and Bright, eager to retrieve the Zeta, sets a tripwire. However, he is unable to confront Judo. The boys from Shangri-La set off explosions as a distraction, allowing Judo to join them and all of them to drive away in their truck. Yazan regains consciousness and flees into the colony. Out in space, an Axis ship arrives and sends a mysterious suitcase drifting toward Shangri-La. show immediately endeared itself to me, <laughs> uh, mostly because of some change in tone compared to Zeta. And that encompasses 
things in the way the animation is done, the music, the story. This is a much more lighthearted show than Zeta was. For all that we are still sort of mid-war, uh, and it brings up some new issues on top of that that are also very serious, there's so much slapstick, there's so much exaggerated physicality in the characters, in the way they move, in their postures, in their facial expressions. I'm just picturing Judo clambering over the outside of the <laughs> Zeta. Yes. Actually, for me, it's when he's on Yazan's pod very early in the mm, show mm -hmm. where he hops off and he's like crawling on it like a lizard. <laughs> it's so good. It's funny. Yeah. For all that this series opens with that, you know, peppy, jazzy opener about how it's not anime. It's a real story. It's a serious story. Uh, we also open with a very fun funny, kind of silly-toned opening episode. Which is not to say it's not also serious. It is very serious. I think part of this comes down to differences in Judo and Camille's characters. What struck me, there's a moment after Yazan kills Saigusa, which we're going to come back to, I'm sure, where he gets very angry. You know, he talks about, this is why I hate adults. Even when we try to do everything right, adults mess it up. There is this sort of pragmatic, reasonably happy young person on the surface who has to deal with a lot of bad things in his life but makes the most of it and has friendships that help support him in that. Yeah, precisely. He has a great support structure. He's cocky. He's reckless. His life's pretty bad by any objective material consideration, but he has people around him that he cares about and who support him, even when they're also backstabbing him a little bit. But it's all in like, it's not exactly in fun, but it's all in camaraderie. And perhaps just has the sort of personality that makes the best of every situation that tends toward cheerfulness and tends toward trying to have fun. He's resilient in a way that Camille never was. It's not that he's not angry. Like, that's that's the key piece to remember, though. He is angry. It's just not his overriding personality characteristic. <laughs> <laughs> and when he gets angry, it doesn't uh, take over. Camille is like a paper-thin, tissue-thin film of personality wrapped around a ball of seething rage. And sadness. Camille is also so deeply sad. I feel like there's a sad core underneath the rage. With Judo, the anger is still there, but it makes up a smaller fraction of his overall persona. They're very different personalities. Like, a lot of it comes down to their individual characters. We also need to acknowledge that they are very different in terms of their station in life. And I think this feeds back into the tone in a really important way. Uh, for all that Camille had a very unhappy home life, Camille was from the upper class, or at least the upper middle class. He went to a really nice school in a fancy colony. His parents were military officers, uh, highly educated engineers. Camille himself was, except for that whole joining the rebellion thing, on track to follow in their footsteps. Well, and they had political connections that they could exercise to his benefit. <laughs> yeah, he punched out a titan and he was going to be released thanks to his parents' connections. 
On the other hand, Judo is clearly from the underclass, the working class. His family is so poor, his parents had to leave the colony to find work elsewhere. They send home a remittance, but it isn't even enough to cover the very basic necessities for Judo and his sister. He needs to work to be able to afford power, taxes, and air. It's a an interesting moment of disconnect between him and his friends and Fa, right? Because on the one hand, they look at Fa and they don't think she could possibly be a soldier. And they're surprised by how calm she is about being taken hostage, about being kidnapped. Whereas for Fa, like danger is old hat at this point, And she is absolutely a soldier. But on the other hand, it never even occurs to her that people her own age wouldn't be in school. Now, the mandatory schooling age in Japan ends sooner than it does in the United States. I think now it ends at 15 or 16. Um, Not sure what it would have been in the 80s. But the assumption that everybody would go on to do more schooling rather than pursue a trade or start working is very like middle class, upper middle class. This scene is so important for this episode, really for Gundam as a whole, um, because what we see here is the clash between people who are uh, rich enough and politically connected enough to be involved in the grand politics of the universal century. People from that upper middle class strata, like Fa, like Camille, of course they're involved. Of course they have a stake in the Ayug versus the Titans. People like Judo, they are working so hard all the time just to meet their most basic material needs. They don't have the spare attention. They don't have the bandwidth to pay attention really to these bigger, I'm saying this with air quotes, bigger concerns of the political maneuvering. I don't know that I agree with you (laughs) about that being purely a class thing, because at least in our own world, plenty of people who have trouble meeting their own material needs are very politically active. The second half of this that is being revealed in this scene to Judo is that actually, while he thinks it doesn't concern him and while he thinks he can't afford to be involved in it, actually, he can't afford not to be involved in it because it's everywhere and it's coming for him. The two issues, the political and the class dynamics, are enmeshed inextricably. And it's Fa and Judo talking about them from different perspectives here that helps us see that. Points to Fa, her criticism of them initially comes from a lack of understanding of their situation. Once they explain it to her, she seems very sympathetic. But it never occurs to her that people her own age might have to work. (laughs) And that their parents might not be around. It feels like she's trying to shame them. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And this makes sense for her because most of her experience is with Camille. And Camille is like the easiest person in the world to shame. Judo, on the other hand, has no shame. Their lack of connection to the, I don't know whether to call it a war or not, the conflict that consumed Zeta really hammers home a point that gets made sort of on the edges of Zeta itself. There are various points where Ayug visit a place, and that place is clearly maintaining a sort of neutrality. They cater to Ayug, they cater to the Titans, they're not really picking a side, and the fighting goes on. This is also true of Shangri-La, that the average person has been put in a position where they don't have to pick a side. Well, it also goes to emphasize how little Ayug really speaks for the majority of colonies. 
And you pointed this out in our coverage of Zeta a couple of times. Ayug shows up here, and it's not like, oh, Ayug, representatives of Shangri-La, our friends, we'll do anything for you. It's like, no, you get in line with everybody else, and you can pay for your repairs or not receive your repairs. Right. Shangri-La also got mentioned in Zeta. I'm not sure if you remember. I believe it was Minerva who was talking to Shar about being tired of moving all over the place and that she had heard wonderful things about Shangri-La. And in the world of Gundam as it has existed up until now, you imagine when you hear these wonderful things, a sort of uniformly idyllic, almost utopian place to live. And yet the first close-in shots we see of Shangri-La are of where Judo and his sister live. And the buildings are dirty and dilapidated. There's trash on the streets. There's stray dogs. The overwhelming color palette is brown. And gray. <laughs> it's the most heavily urbanized colony we've seen. Uh, the only places we've seen in Gundam so far that are in worse condition than this were the cities that were actually bombed in first Gundam. And then later on, we see a huge mansion and a young woman who has servants. Oh, even before that, when they're driving on the highway out of their neighborhood. Oh, and it's uh, tree-lined boulevards. Yes. And, <laughs> and in the background, you can see the like bright green sections of the nice parts of the colony. Shangri-La is a study in contrasts. Kind of like this whole episode, actually. You know, you mentioned earlier the like funny, energetic, dynamic movements, the animation, the tone, those very expressive faces, and a lot of legitimately funny bits, including some slapstick. Also, the random and seemingly senseless death of a character that we've known for nearly 50 episodes. The illusion of safety. That the argument should have fought for so long and fought so hard, and they think that on a colony they would be safe. And yet, the conflict follows them everywhere. It is everywhere. Yeah, there's no indication that Shangri-La has been directly involved in any of this fighting, but at the beginning, Judo and company are making their living salvaging scrapped mobile suits. They pull in Yazan's escape pod. Judo mentions that he saw a scrapped Hyzak drifting through space. Sayagusa hit me pretty hard. <laughs> He'd just been with us so long and had just enough characterization that you feel you have an impression of the man. And in addition to being the moment that shows us the sort of underlying anger in Judo, also highlighted for me uh, just what class of criminal <laughs> he and his friends are. Because we see that they're okay with crime, right? Yeah. They are completely okay with Yazan stealing them a truck full of produce. That's fine. That's exciting, in fact. That's great. Judo has seems a little bit uh, put off by throwing the driver out of the truck. Well, that's the thing. They're okay with crime. They're not really into violence or yeah. hurting other people. They don't want to shoot the guns. Which, side note, where did Yazan get a crate full of rifles? Judo also criticizes Yazan for grabbing Fa's arm roughly. He's like, oh, you don't have to be rough with her. They are not at all capable of sounding intimidating when they make <laughs> the announcement that they've taken a hostage. So when Yazan kills Sayugasa, Judo's immediate reaction is, like you said, anger. And one of the things he says is, we were trying so hard to do it right. 
And in his mind, doing it right means stealing whatever you're trying to steal, but without hurting anybody. Judo is also clearly quite comfortable with sort of physical conflict. He's pretty adept at kicking Bright in the face <laughs> and shoving Bright out of the way and climbing and running and jumping. You know, he's been in some scraps. One gets the impression. Uh, his friends are also very comfortable with explosives, which could be from their salvaging work. <laughs> I would guess so. And yet, in a moment that to me sort of hammers home that they are kids, they are so quick to accept Yazan's leadership. This random soldier that they pull out of a pod who is admittedly very scary, but they don't just run away from him. They could just say like, all right, you're safely on Shangri-La, bye. <laughs> they are so quick to accept his leadership until things go pear-shaped. I feel like the Yazan we're getting here is like 120% of the Yazan that we got in Zeta. Like he's just Yazan, but to the next level. The evil laughing. And he turns on a dime too, right? He's laughing and then he suddenly shifts and he looks suspicious. The whole thing gives him the feeling of being deranged, yet not deranged in a way that is uh, inconsistent with the Yazan that we have gotten to know so far. Merely uh, an exaggeration of it. There's a theory that Yazan uh, suffered oxygen deprivation. I was just going to posit that perhaps the oxygen deprivation in his pod... So I kind of buy this theory because the wild laughter and those abrupt mood swings are both behaviors that we saw Tem Ray demonstrate after he experienced oxygen deprivation. But whether that's the cause or not, what we get here is an exaggerated Yazan, an over-the-top Yazan, a Yazan who fits into the mood and the tenor of Double Zeta. We also noted that a couple of returning characters feel much more active in Double Zeta than they did in Zeta, especially Bright and Shinta and Kum. Yes. First of all, Shinta and Kum, when they appear in this episode, there's a little joke with Fa where Fa's like, I thought you two had disappeared. <laughs> I thought the same thing because they really do. In the last 10 episodes of Zeta or something, they go from regular appearances to, I don't know, like one cameo. It's nice to see the writers making fun of themselves. Is it the same writing team? Maybe it's a different writing team making fun of the Zeta writing team. No, it's, this is basically the same team. Okay. The, um, this is part of what makes that dramatic shift in tone across the two series so remarkable is that it is basically the same people making it. Uh, this particular episode was written by Suzuki, who's one of the two writers from Zeta, Um it was directed by Sugishima, who was the episode director who did a whole bunch of Zeta episodes, including most notably Forever 4, the second of the two Kilimanjaro episodes where 4 gets killed. And the storyboards for this episode, there are two people credited for it, so it, it was probably a collaboration or uh, the more junior one sort of took a first stab at it and the more senior one did the second run. But one of the two people credited for storyboards on this episode is Tomino himself. The Shinta and Kum of Double Zeta feel much more like Kika Cats and Let's of First Gundam. And they were starting to get there in Zeta before they disappeared. They were like, especially when they were interacting with Rosamia, they had more to do. But yes, they take matters into their own hands. It's a situation where these kids have problems and they can't rely on adults to resolve them. So they take up arms, literally, uh, to try to save Fa and fix the situation. 
kind of like Judo and company, who are also a bunch of kids who can't rely on adults and have been forced to take action themselves uh, completely inappropriate for their age level in order to try to fix it. And as you pointed out while we were watching the episode, Shinta and Kum are pretty good shots. They're trying to do more than they're really capable of, given their size and age. Uh, but their aim is good. Yeah. If the mobile worker that Yazan was using did not have such a bulletproof cockpit, they would have shot him right through the head. And then, of course, Torres shows up and lassos them. <laughs> Torres, another one who is doing way more, much more active than in the previous series. Bright, too, especially there at the end. Imagine Zeta Bright in this episode. When all the chaos is going on in the hangar and Judo is stealing the Gundam, Zeta Bright would have, like, stood there and gone, Ugh. Won't somebody stop this? He would have looked very grumpy. He probably would not have been the one to like hop in a mobile worker and tripwire the Zeta so yes. that <laughs> Judo couldn't take it. Has Bright seen The Empire Strikes Back? Probably. <laughs> I assume so. I assume they all have. <laughs> this is so much more realistic a depiction of a kid's first attempt to pilot a mobile suit, even though you know, Judo has been reading Mobile Suit monthly or whatever and thinks he knows how to do it. It is a total mess. But again, how much of that is class? Amuro had had exposure to his father's work. He sort of knew a little bit about it and it had a top flight education. Camille was piloting small mobile suits recreationally as like an extracurricular activity from school. Yeah. You know, Judo pilots a mobile worker for work. But imagine taking a like pretty skilled amateur bulldozer operator and putting them in a fighter jet. Yeah, I I really enjoyed actually his struggles with that. Since we're on Judo and Camille again, I want to talk about two things. One is the actual close, immediate, intimate connection between Judo and Camille. When Judo finds Camille, who is catatonic in the back of the truck, uh, and they, like, make eye contact, I think they, like, link hands. Camille reaches out toward him, and Judo takes his hand. Camille reaches out physically and psychically. There's, like, a passing of something between them. This is Judo's awakening moment, and he's going to see Camille again and again. Like, whenever he looks at the Zeta, he sees Camille. Two things here. We know that new types near each other, in proximity to each other, have an effect on each other. I also feel as though this tells us a bit about what has happened to Camille, right? It is strange to see him go from simply sort of mind-wiped to completely catatonic. But when he and Judo link hands, what Judo sees is space, the infiniteness of space. And so my read on that is that Camille has basically pulled a Lala, but without dying. Mm. He's out there sort of united with space and time, but he's done it without leaving his physical body completely. It's no longer relevant or necessary to him, but because he didn't die, it's, it's still there. He's off hanging out with all those ghosts. Yeah, I mean, basically, that's, that's what I think is going on with Camille. I think that's a good read. Yeah. 
The other thing I want to say about the contrast between Judo and Camille is also about how it plays into the change in tone and mood. Zeta was a story about powerful people, high-level people, the highest-level people, the people who are uh, running these respective factions. Jamatov Hyman, Blex Forer, Quattro Bajina, Prince of Space. Haman Karn. Minivazabi. And in that, you have Camille and Rekoa and Emma, a kind of like lower tier, but they're part of this grand story, this high, elevated story of like the most important political developments and philosophical ones. Even when you think about Sirocco, you're seeing an almost religious conflict, one about the nature of humanity and, and what will become of the human species in the next era of human development. Judo's story is smaller. It's a story about poor, no-account kids trying to survive and trying, maybe, to get rich. His foremost ambition is to be able to send his sister to a nice school, probably a school a lot like the one that Camille went to. We come back to class again, and also to, I think, a, a very specific blip that occurs in, in many societies where the key to social mobility appears to be, and sometimes actually is, getting the right sort of education. This is very rarely about the education itself and usually about the people you meet and the connections you make. Right. He's not talking about getting Lena an excellent tutor who will, you know, teach her all the knowledge she needs to succeed. He's talking about sending her uptown so that she'll rub shoulders with the wealthy uptown people. Like, you know, the younger sister of the woman in the mansion that they wreck during <laughs> the, the chase scene. They only clip part of the attic. That's true. There's still a lot more mansion for them to wreck in the future. Isn't that just such a nice little encapsulation of what this story is about? It's like these poor kids desperately struggling to survive, this rich woman sunbathing on her lawn, and then like Yazan and Judo just crashing through her mansion. But anyway, in Shakespearean plays, there's usually a contrast between high tragedy the stories of King Lear, Hamlet, people like that. And then within those stories, there's usually an element of low comedy, the stories of bottom. And it's not that either one of these is better or more important. Each one plays a role in the story. They work together. They are in conversation with each other to express the overall point of the story. Camille's half of the story was high tragedy, elevated, grand tragedy. Judo is the poor fool, the jester. Judo's story is low slapstick comedy because that's the kind of character he is. Again, in Shakespeare, the characters who get to have the high tragedy are nobles, they're kings, they're generals. The characters who have low comedy are servants, nurses, you know, support characters. <laughs> Vagabonds. So the shift in tone and style and mood, it's part of this long-standing theatrical narrative tradition. It's part of the way these stories are told for these different types of characters.
And now, Nina's research on Japan's economy in 1986. In the talkback, we brought up class and how different Judo's position is from our previous Gundam protagonists. This week, I am digging into some of the socioeconomic conditions in Japan in the mid 1980s, especially those that could have contributed to Judo's characterization education and labor force participation of young people, women's participation in the labor force, and migrant labor in Japan. Since the occupation period, mandatory education in Japan covers six years of elementary school and three years of middle school, or lower secondary education, through equivalent of the United States' ninth grade, around age 14 or 15. And for young people not in standard upper secondary education, there are technical and trade schools, apprenticeships, and employment. Data points are somewhat lacking, but in 1980, only 57% of boys completed upper secondary school. At the same time, 94% enrolled in upper secondary school, which seems to point to high rates of truancy and a large number of young men dropping out before graduation. When you say upper secondary school, you mean what we in the United States would call high school. Yes, although it's only three years long rather than four years like in the United States. So from about 15, 16 until 18. Correct. Given this disconnect between enrollment and completion of upper secondary school, judo hardly seems like an outlier. So you'd say there's probably some local upper secondary school, some local high school where they have a, a list of the students, and somewhere in there it says judo ashta is supposed to be attending class, and he just doesn't. Correct. That, that would be my assumption, along with his friends. Youth unemployment was quite low, though it's worth remembering unemployment describes people looking for jobs but who don't have them. It was only 5%. And the unemployment rate for 15 to 24 year olds was about 41%, which is lower than in the United States at the same time, where it was 60%. However, judo and companies' work may well be off the books. And so they wouldn't be accounted for in any official employment or unemployment rates. This time saw a general increase in women's labor force participation. And most critical to Judo's case, women were much more likely to enter the labor force if their husband's earnings were low. There's a very close correlation between higher earnings for a husband and lower likelihood of working for his wife. And that brings to mind the scene where Judo and Fa are talking about his parents' work while they're in the back of that produce truck.、Uh, and when Judo says, Well, my parents work, Fa asks, Oh, your mother too. Related to that,、uh, there is a term in Japanese, Tanshin Funin, which was when a man's job relocated him, but not with his family. In 1985, about 18% of all job transfers were this type, and it was increasing. It was more than 30% by 1990. This was required by many workplaces, especially of middle managers.、Uh, it was considered essential for training purposes and was sometimes a prerequisite for promotion. In addition to the fact that workplaces were not going to pay your relocation costs, Oftentimes, a man might leave his family behind so as to not disrupt his children's schooling, or so that his spouse could tend to elderly relatives or reasons of that nature. 
I mean, we talked last season in at least one of our research pieces about the very small role that Japanese men uh, at the time were playing in family life. However, interestingly, because this was fairly common, some studies were done as to how a father's absence affected children and whether it was different than the father simply working long hours. Absence of a father pretty much only seemed to affect sons, no noticeable effect on daughters, and changed how the sons displayed masculinity. It led to worse grades for boys and for a greater incidence of delinquency and crime. Delinquency and crime, you say? Indeed. The other internal migration trends within Japan at this time were characterized by a slowing of urbanization, the growth of regional cities, and increasing suburbanization. There are two trends they talk about. One is called the U-turn. It's people who move to an urban center and then return to their hometown. Or the J-turn, people who move to an urban center and then return to their home prefecture, usually to the regional city. So this would be like fairly young people starting their careers or for education, moving to the cities, finishing college, working for a couple of years at a company, and then deciding to pack it in and go back home. Yes. Migration usually coincided with particular life stages. Going to college, getting a first job, marrying, uh, perhaps the retirement of your parents or the need to care for your parents. The way that Judo and his sister live and the fact that their mother also works makes their situation less akin to the Tanshin Funin father situation and more like the situation of migrant workers. Now, migrant workers are a major part of economies all over the world. The United States has a significant migrant labor population from Mexico. Countries in the Persian Gulf have significant populations of migrant workers from South and Southeast Asia, as well as Africa. And Japan has significant migrant labor populations from Pakistan and Southeast Asia, particularly Thailand, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Migrant labor can also refer to people relocating within a country, For example, people from the Chinese countryside relocating to cities for work. The main distinction being that migrant workers intend for the relocation to be temporary. They're not trying to naturalize or or live for the rest of their life in the host country. And the vast majority do not bring their families. Their families stay in their home country and they send remittances. They send as much of their wage as they can back home. Which is what Judo's parents are doing. And when we talk about migrant labor, we are typically referring to farm and factory work, construction and domestic work, housekeeping, childcare, and so on. Migrant workers generally have little to no institutional power within their place of employment and are frequently taken advantage of by their employers. Forced to work long hours at below minimum wage and with no overtime pay, often in unsafe conditions. There have been high profile cases of domestic workers whose employers stole their passports and kept them enslaved. If a migrant worker is undocumented or not fluent in the host language, they may not realize their employer is violating labor laws, or they may be afraid to seek help, and often with good reason. They may well not be protected by local law or may be more likely to be deported than helped. While we have had few hints of immigration controls within the Earth's sphere, people seem to be allowed to move between the colonies pretty freely. The simple lack of local connections and support plus competition for work if jobs are scarce, can make migrant workers vulnerable. 
It is this sort of precarity that Judo's parents seem to live in. And we know, going back all the way to the very first episode of Zeta Gundam, that there is, or at least is referenced, a sort of underclass of space noids who do not have official government documentation. When Camille is arrested by the military police, the lawyer who comes to let him out because his parents exercised some of their uh, political influence on his behalf mentions that if he were, quote, a spacenoid with no papers, he would have been detained there for days. Historically, Japan's economic miracle of the post-war years gave it a reputation as a land of plenty and opportunity. Urbanization, declining birth rates, and the local shift to white-collar jobs created a need for workers in construction, manufacturing, and the service sector. What many at the time called 3K jobs for kitsui, demanding, kitanai, dirty, and kiken, dangerous. Overall unemployment was very low in Japan at this time, only 2% on average throughout the 1980s. For context, the generally accepted natural rate of unemployment that exists as people enter the workforce, look for new or better jobs, or lose jobs due to technological advancements in their industry is estimated to be around 4 or 5%. A rate of only 2% means there are very few people looking for work. Employers may have trouble hiring. Workers can sometimes command higher wages. It implies a labor shortage, hence the willingness to hire foreigners. In the mid to late 1980s, ethnically Japanese people who had grown up abroad, mostly in Brazil and Peru, started to return to Japan. I say return in that tone because most of them had never lived in Japan. She made the little air quotes as she said it. Economic growth in South America had slowed while Japan was booming, and their background gave them residency rights that did not extend to other foreigners. Additionally, globalization made Japan less physically and psychologically remote and led to increased immigration from South and Southeast Asia. Both of these immigration trends received a lot of press attention at this time. Most of the press was alarmist, characterizing the arrival of foreign workers as a second round of black ships, comparing them to the reopening forced on Japan by the arrival of Commodore Perry in the mid-1800s. The more visible foreign presence in parks and public places was treated as a problem. As one paper described, the ideology of the ethnic nation-state was against immigration in Japan, and many Japanese people considered it contrary to the national interest. And while I'm sure there were many organizations working for protection of migrant workers and to secure their rights, the overriding narrative presented in popular media, newspapers, TV programs, was that the immigrants' presence was a problem to be solved, not the treatment of immigrants. Now, Shangri-La seems to have the opposite problem from Japan in this scenario. They lack jobs, not workers, and this is as a consequence of the war. But that makes Shangri-La like many of the places that these migrant workers were coming from. And the plight of migrant workers would have been front of mind in the sort of popular consciousness for anyone keeping up with the local news. To finish on a lighter note, I was struck by what a big deal the various characters make of the fresh produce in this episode, especially the oranges. Now, they use the word orange. This describes what people in the United States would call an orange, probably a navel or Valencia orange, the kind we use for snacking. There are citrus native to Japan. The most common is called mikan. 
But these are thin-skinned, what people in the United States call mandarins, clementines, or satsumas. The way a couple of the characters try to eat the oranges, struggling to bite through the thick, tough rind, makes them seem like an unfamiliar foodstuff. So I did a bit of digging into Japan's produce imports. There was some domestic production of orenji, but it was a very small portion of the market. Overall, fruit production peaked in the 1970s and has been declining ever since. Orange imports, however, peaked in the 1990s and had been steadily increasing before that. Orange imports were also almost exclusively from the United States. Even now, Japan is one of the largest foreign markets for U.S. orange production, and in the late 1980s, it was the largest foreign market. In fact, Japan had numerous tariffs, import restrictions, and quota for agricultural products. The restrictions on imports of oranges and beef were particularly contentious in Japan's trade relationship with the United States. A 1998 agreement would raise and then eliminate these quota, although the tariffs remained until some time after. Now, in Japan, overall fruit consumption has been declining since the 1970s, as is common when standard of living increases and more expensive foods like meat take their place, not to mention increased availability of processed foods. But consumption of oranges was increasing through the mid-90s, and oranges were particularly popular with people born before World War II. The papers I read look at possible economic and age-related reasons for the increase and then decrease in orange consumption. For instance, was consumption affected by fluctuating prices or household income? Answer, not really. Both incomes and prices were relatively stable, and while people tend to eat more fruit as they get older, Japan's aging population seems to counteract the fact that young people eat less fruit, more or less evening things out. They don't talk about whether oranges were considered a treat or a rarity, which is something that was very common in other parts of the world before improvements to transportation made moving fruit from one region to another more common. I mean, I remember my own mom telling me stories about getting an orange in her Christmas stocking as like a special treat because oranges were very expensive in her childhood and she lived in Alaska. If oranges had this perception in Japan as well, then the increase in popularity as they become more accessible and affordable and then decline as they become less special could account for that pattern. Another possibility, again, not discussed in any of my sources based on conjecture of my own, is that oranges could have been part of food aid to Japan in the post-war years, or that as part of U.S. Army rations, occupation soldiers may have been in the habit of giving oranges to locals as a friendly gesture, something that may have felt particularly special after the hunger of the war years and the immediate post-war. I don't know whether that was the case for oranges, but we do actually know that the rise in popularity of chocolate in Japan can be traced to U.S. soldiers giving out chocolate to children. That's what made me wonder about the oranges. Um, I did see some sources that mentioned oranges as part of the army's rations. So like the ration of chocolate that they were receiving that they sometimes shared with locals, they may have given oranges to kids those kids grow up with a pleasant association about oranges. Regardless of the reasons why, it is safe to say that during the time Double Zeta was being written, oranges were shifting from a rarity to becoming more and more widely available and popular. Did any of your sources talk about the effectiveness of oranges as a bribe? 
in order to get access to confidential or secure military facilities? No. We may have to do a different research piece about uh, fruit as gifts in Japan. Uh, people who are more familiar with Japanese culture have often heard stories about you know $100 melons and things of that nature. Uh, there is a custom of giving perfect fruit, like exceptionally beautiful <laughs> fruit, as uh, very fancy gifts. So it would not surprise me to hear that very fancy fruit gifts had been used as bribes. I couldn't let Saigusa's death pass unremarked. Never central to events, but always in the background, competently doing his work, and in his way, an essential piece of Ayug's fight against the Titans and Axis. Among all this episode's beginnings, his death is an unexpected end, part of the steady passing of the old generation as the new one takes its place. This poem by Semimaru from the Hyakunin Ishu captures some of that feeling. I have taken one small and obvious liberty with the text. Kore this is it, the place of comings and goings, of partings, of knowing and not knowing, Shangri-La's gate. Next time on episode 3.3, The Chevalier of Axis, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episodes 3 and 4, and welcome back, suitcase full of gold. We have no choice but to stand the Argama. Elegance and refinement. The himbo makes his move. Rose-tinted memories. Mashima has a crush on every girl. Class warfare. Children are the future of our war effort. Hello, nurse. Manuel, relay more instructions. And do you want new types? Because that's how you get new types. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, instrumental, by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La was performed by Linova Moran, Adam Black, Edward Bauer, Sean Chin, Sean DMR, Carmen M, and JB. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast 
on facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, there should have been a Who's That mobile suit sequence in every episode out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. That's that's too mean to Camille, who is a good space boy. It's when they're in the back of the truck and the kids are chomping on. I don't know why I keep calling them the kids and Fa not, even though she's like the same two age. or three years older than they are. Anyway, um, Fa's also a kid. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> We're only just getting the barest impressions of these characters at this point, except for Judo, who gets most of the characterization, and then uh, Bicha and Eno a little bit as well, but... We don't even get Eno's name in this episode. No. Nope. All right, well... <laughs> <laughs> we get Bicha. That guy. I forget which one of them is the explosives guy. The small one. I think that's Mondo. Yeah, didn't get his name either. <laughs> I also just love Bright leaning into the cockpit. Do you even know how to pilot this thing? <laughs> Hate motorcycle or car or whatever the stuff. Drank nothing but coffee all morning. Do do do. Grr trucks. Grr. Was that good? And now you expect me to then, then she was waxing her chibi mobile suit, then and now mm. can't she understand that the Xeon loving rebel spit of space I've got to join AU Bethany. It's the right thing to do. safety. Oh, Bethany! Yeah.